0: Well, good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about America's transportation future. I'd like to start off by apologizing a little bit for the unusual setup that we have here. Uh, we're improvising a, uh, a projector screen, uh, and the wall is going to have to suffice today. So uh, uh, hopefully we're able to see. If not, maybe we can dim the lights or something when we get to the PowerPoint presentation. But uh, since we have three speakers and a very full agenda in a short amount of time, let's go ahead. And 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 get to our our first speaker for the afternoon. Uh, First up is going to be Alan Pizarski. He's a writer and consultant in the field of transportation research, policy, and investment. Uh, He's written a number of studies, including a a series of studies called Commuting in America that has uh, been released every decade since 1986. Uh, He's frequently testified here on Capitol Hill before both uh, House and Senate committees. And uh, he's won a uh, number of awards, including uh, the Distinguished Lecture and the W.N. Carey Award, both from the Transportation Research Board. And uh, he's also been named among the top 100 in the field of transportation in the 20th century by the American Road and Transportation Builders. And with that, I'll turn things over to Alan Buzarski.
1: Thank you there. Yeah. there. Okay. We have to move the screen back so people can see. <clears throat> I don't know if you can see this cartoon. I couldn't resist bringing it along. I love it. It says, fundamental design flaws that plagued the pioneers of mag lab. <laughs> I've had it for, I don't know, who I stole it from. I think it was Bizarro or one of those cartoons. Anyway, I thought it was just kind of fun. The rest of the presentation will be a well, trifle more serious. Anyway. Um, is that, is that visible? Could, sh- should we move the, the projector back a little farther? Can everybody see it? It's fine. Uh, good.
0: you moving
1: the screen back. No, no, I was just saying, no, I can't move the screen back. So I was moving the pro- projector back. Anyway, I want to start off with kind of a context setting. I think there's a tendency in transportation today, say we're going to talk about transportation, immediately forget about freight and then talk about passenger, then forget about inner city and then forget about all the other stuff and talk about commuting, and then get into a fight about highways versus transit and think we're talking about transportation. Although most of my career has been spent talking about commuting, I'm here to tell you that commuting is a small and declining share of what's going on out there, and that we need, if we're going to talk about transportation, we really need to to look beyond commuting and beyond the the, the fraternity battles uh, among the modes. Um, That's kind of my list over there of the other activities that I think comprise uh, transportation. And it's amazing what we don't know about the rest of those things. We know our stats are a little bit better on commuting than the rest of it. But fundamentally commuting, as I say, is a small, and even in the peak hour in many areas, uh, commuting is not is not the, the, the major part of the game. Uh, but it is still home in the workplace or the anchors around which a lot of our other travel occurs. So it's a very important thing. And it's also where the public gets its most recurring contact with the system, and, 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 uh, and anger uh, about uh, frustration about uh, about congestion. So I want to start off with where we're at, some of the basics about current commuting behavior. Um, this is in this decade, average travel times haven't really budged. The, the 2000 census, the decennial showed us that we had about 25.5 minutes average travel time to work across the country. Of course, that's variable. Uh, But you can see in the new survey, the new American Community Survey, which is an annual survey, shows that things have not really changed that much over that 25.5, 30 seconds one way or the other. We don't really get together and have celebrations when travel times go down 30 seconds. Uh, But uh, I was on the Today Show one time and and Matt Lauer asked me, what are we going to do about congestion? And I said, I thought 10 percent. Uh, unemployment would do wonders for congestion and it wasn't a forecast but it's the only forecast I've ever made I think that actually came true. Um, Anyway, uh, my sense of it and I think we need to talk about what is it we mean by congestion. To me my term for congestion is it's people with the economic means to act on their social and economic interests getting in the way of other people with the means to act on theirs and if that guy in front of you on the on the freeway would just be unemployed. You'd get to work a whole lot sooner, you know. And I think that's something we have to recognize. These are problems. Many cases of affluence. Um, I don't like to use that average travel time thing for for a, a measure of commuting because averages, of course, can be distorted. And I don't think any any average can be more distorted than than average travel time. So what I look at is uh, my sense of it is my measure is a commuters. Uh, commuters in generally are happy when at least half of them can get to work in under 20 minutes. And up until about 1990 or so, that's about the way we were in America. It's now dropped down around 44 percent, and as you can see, from 2005 through the most current data, 2009, we're still at about 45 percent. In middle America, that is to say, literally middle of the country, they're still at that area of about half of them getting to work uh, uh, under under 20 minutes. And I, I think you don't really have a lot to complain about if you're if you're doing that. The other end of the distribution I look at is how many people are commuting more than 60 minutes. And you can see down there, again, that's been pretty stable around roughly 8%. My my rule is if it's under 10%, you're doing pretty well. This is for the country, includes rural and urban. You look at most urban metropolitan areas, the number over 60 minutes is is well over 10%. I just looked at the Northern Virginia stuff the other day, and it's, you know, 12 15% over 60 minutes. Uh, Uh, And, in fact, many over what the census calls extreme commutes, which is over 90 minutes to work. And here you see the the percentages for uh, long-term travel in both uh, 60 to 90 and above 90. Uh, Part of this, I think, is is an argument today that kind of congestion really isn't that important and maybe is our friend is, is kind of the argument I think in a lot of the planning fraternity. There's a disinterest in congestion. It doesn't really come up in terms of the goals for metropolitan planning very frequently. Uh, and at worst, in, in many cases congestion is almost a goal. It's like if we could just make things get bad enough, we can solve the problem. we can get people to, to behave to change their behavior or think in, in other ways. So I think we have to recognize in many cases there really is a constituency for congestion which sounds kind of crazy, but in fact I, I think I could argue that that's in fact the case. The great loss from congestion is not that somebody gets home three minutes or five minutes later. It's the it's the change in market areas, the change in market shed. It's the decline in the number of jobs I could reach in half an hour, the, the decline in the number of homes I could reach, uh, potential homes I could reach from my workplace in half an hour. It's the decline in reliability of getting to work. From the businessman's point of view, it's access to markets, access to consumers, access to suppliers in the same vein. Uh, Looking at the mode shares, again, things are really quite stable. Uh, I talk a lot to reporters, and it's getting harder and harder to tell them anything exciting. They don't like to hear the fact that, well, it's about the same as it was in 1990, same as it was in 2000, so there's no story here, you know. Uh, And as you can see, drive alone grew a little bit but then stabilized after 2000. Carpooling continues its decline. It's been declining since the 60s. We can talk about that later if you want to ask me. Transit is is relatively stable. Around 5% of total travel nationally. Uh, bicycling is around half of a 1%. It shows up as zero here. Uh, walking has been declining, just like carpooling, over a long period of time. The only thing that's growing, other than driving alone, is working at home. Working at home is, is, is actually a boom area. Uh, you can call it a mode of transportation, but that's growing, and in many areas, actually, um, well, I'll show you. This is a um, this is a slide designed to be boring. Uh, you see all of the modes shown there, uh, single-occupant vehicles in the blue, driving alone, carpooling in the orange, everything else down there in the in the mid-ranges, you don't really see a whole lot. So if you just drop out the single-occupant vehicles, this is, you get a little more detail here. And you can see that uh, uh, working at home, the line here is, Getting to the point where it may very well pass uh, transit use, obviously people who work at home, like me, have uh, make no impact, uh, no no demands on, on the transportation system. In most areas of the country today, working at home, most metro areas, uh, working at home would be larger than, than transit uh, and then bicycling down there. Uh, this is a, just a quick slide to show you where the decline was in workers in the last three years, of the three years of, of this uh, slide. The people who dropped out, the people who became unemployed are all the people who, who leave for work before 7:30 in the morning. It was all the construction workers, it was the manufacturing workers, uh, The people in the services and the retail world, the folks who leave for work after eight o'clock in the morning. Um, didn't do anywhere near as badly. So I think it just kind of, t- th- this picture kind of tells you a lot about what the, what the commuting and the, and the workforce story is. Uh, this is a tough one, but I take a little a minute to, to just uh, make sure that, that you appreciate it. This is where the flows are. And I think it's immensely important to recognize it, because this is an area where we really don't understand it. The first maroon bar is people who live in central cities and work in central cities, and that's about uh, 25 million people. Uh, And the little blue bar next to it is a a proportion of those that use uh, transit. Uh, The next little red bar there is the people who live in central cities and work in the suburbs. And that's a very, uh, it's small but growing very fast. In fact, it was faster growing than people living in suburbs working in the central city. The next, the third red bar over there, the long red bar, is, is the standard Aussie and Harriet commute, the uh, Leave it to Beaver commute. That's uh, live in suburbs, work downtown. And it's growing very, very little, almost not at all. The, the dominant bar is the suburb to suburb commute. It's the circumferential versus radial commute. And I have to say that our entire transportation system is not designed for circumferential worlds. It's designed for, for radial worlds. And then the final bar at the far right there, the other little bars, by the way, are people who actually commute in a central city of this metropolitan area, go to the central city of another metropolitan area, or go to a rural area, and those are growing very, very fast. Live in the suburbs of Washington, work in the suburbs of Baltimore, as an example. The final bar is people who live in rural areas and work in rural areas. Again, about 25 million. And it's interesting. We never talk about the fact that there are 25 million people in rural areas trying to get to work in rural areas. Uh, We much more focus on that 25 million in central cities getting to work in central cities. So where are we going? And and I'm I'm captioning this, the search for skilled workers. Uh, Despite the fact that we've got 8 percent unemployment, I think the issue for the future is going to be finding workers, not... Uh, replace, the three trends that I think will be critical will be replacing the baby boomers, where will our workforce come from, uh, expanding the metro, uh, the metro areas of America, they're, they're growing faster and, and, and spreading, and finally focusing on an affluent, time-focused society. And, and uh, when I my congressional testimony a couple of years ago, I talked about designing a transportation system for people whose value of time is $50 an hour. Uh, This just simply shows where the the baby boom workers have passed us by. The the main year of growth was 1970, 1980, that decade. And in this decade, of course, we've had effectively zero growth. Uh, But in the future, I think our problem will be, as I say, too few commuters, not too many. This is where the pop change has occurred. The people of working age uh, grew at about half the rate of the general population all of the growth a big big chunk of the growth occurred to the people over 65. So in effect what we've got is a dependence ratio situation where the people who work and support the people who are too young to work or too old to work, that ratio will be increasing and it's going to make for a tougher society to play in uh, and and commuting will have to react to that. To me, the challenge will be finding those skilled workers wherever they are and employers are going to be willing to go wherever those skilled workers want to be or are, whether it's a mountaintop in Colorado, uh, you know, a a desert in Tucson, And I think competition for skilled workers is going to be critical, and it's going to be amenities-based, people trying to make their areas attractive. To, to the skilled workers. Areas that win in that game will win big. These are some of the for- workforce issues that I think are going to challenge us that we need to address. Basically, increasing specialization and skills, more spreading out therefore, retaining older workers, getting more women involved in the labor force, even more variable schedules, dealing with the immigrants, uh, and and focusing on work, uh, work hours. I think a lot of the future is going to look an awful lot like part-time work to us here today. This is my checklist, and if I look at all of these things, and I think probably best to take a look at this after you uh, the, the presentation, but if there's more more specialization, more affluence, lower densities, higher affordability of autos, more orientation to the automobile, I, all of those things I think kind of check off and, and are basically where I think we're going in in the future. And again, I talk about time sensitivity. The value of people's time is the critical factor, and the value of goods that are being shipped are the critical factors in how the transportation system functions. The conflict that I've seen in Testimony and other places here is the notion of neighborhoods versus versus a globally integrated view. And again, this is a long list, so I won't go through it with you. But there's a tendency to focus on the neighborhood notion of basically a world in which average trip length is not more than five miles. Uh, And the globally integrated is much more focused on the broader sense of community. The average trip length in America to work is about 12 miles. And the fundamental output of it all is there's a notion of behavior change and making good things happen on the the neighborhood side versus a technological perspective and and letting things happen. Um, I think the notion of changing behavior, number one, has been a total failure. Uh, But aside from that, it really diverts us from from what I consider the real issues, and these are the issues that I think are critical, enhancing economic opportunity, enhancing access to workers and their their access to jobs, what I call serving and creating an affluent society, mainstreaming American minorities into the workforce, they're going to be critical, Um, improving safety, serving an aging population, greater freedom. We've got to start, uh, we have an immense task of infrastructure reconstruction, um, big scale numbers, and if we focus on fixing current problems rather than focus on future needs, I think we will be doing very, very well. And if we can just solve the present problems, the future is going to be a lot softer. i want to leave you with my notion of what the goal here for the game is, and this is my notion of a goal for transportation, to reduce the effects of distance as an inhibiting force in our society's ability to realize its economic and social aspirations, I'd like to suggest that to be the goal for a lot of other people in this subject. Anyway, thank you very much.
0: Watch watch the, uh, <laughs> the cables are tricky. Mm. All right, thanks, Alan. Uh, next up, we have Clyde Hart. He is the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs and Policy at the American Bus Association. Uh, he's worked there since 2001 uh, at the American Bus Association. He's in charge of developing policy for the industry as well as communicating uh, his policy ideas to Capitol Hill. Uh, his work has won him several awards. Uh, in fact, he was uh, listed as one of the lobbyists of the year by the Hill magazine, or I'm sorry, the Hill newspaper recently. Uh, prior to joining ABA, he served as the administrator of the U.S. Maritime Administration. He's also served as an attorney for the Interstate Commerce Commission, and he worked on Capitol Hill. He was a senior counsel to the U.S. Senate uh, Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation.
2: Clyde Hart. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you for inviting me. First, the commercial Uh, we are the trade association for the private over-the-road bus company so greyhound Peter Pan Bus Lines, if you're from Minnesota Jefferson Trailways, Um, if you're from Montana Rimrock Stages. I mention these because all those guys are on my board of directors and since this is being recorded, um, I'd like to have (laughs) proof that I mentioned them. (laughs) We have approximately 1,000 bus operating companies. We also have, uh, ABA does, it has 2,500 other members Those other members are restaurants, convention, and visitors bureaus. The New York Yankees are a member of ABA. The Radio City Music Hall is a member of ABA. The International Spy Museum here in Washington is a member of ABA. Why? Because all of those organizations and companies get an awful lot of their traffic and their customers through buses. So they like to know where the buses are going so that they can market to them. Um, When I talk about motor coach, I have a specific kind of coach in mind. It's 35 feet long, it has an elevated passenger deck and the baggage bay is underneath. Those are motor coaches. I'm not talking about the low floor transit coaches. I'm not talking about the cutaways. I'm not talking about vans. I'm talking about motor coaches. Um, There are about 35,000 of them in the fleet in the United States and we move about 750 million passengers a year. We do more in two weeks than Amtrak does in a year. Um, In some years we approach what the domestic airline companies move. So um, we provide inner city. If you want to go to New York, you take boat, bus, or mega bus. You get there, uh, and I see people nodding their heads. Um, I think I've seen you on one of the trips I was on again for my members. Um, but and if you do charter and tour those buses that are bringing the kids to D.C. that you're all tripping over every spring, summer, and fall, those are my members. Um, you may boo now if you wish, get them out. but those are my members. Um, And commuter, we do commuter runs. An awful lot of commuter runs, especially in this area, are private companies that are contracted to the states of Maryland and Virginia. And we do airport shuttle services as well nationwide. Um, This is our statistics. Uh, Alan gave you more statistics. I'm hoping this is the only slide I have that shows statistics so that you'll stay awake for the rest of the presentation. Um, 750 passenger trips in 2007, it's going up, it's gone up since then. Passenger miles, um, down a little, but they're back up this as of 2009. Uh, Passenger trips per coach, 750 million passengers a year. And that brings me to my next point. We get no subsidy. Actually, that's not quite true, we get very little subsidy. We are completely private and we live out of our fair box for the most part. Our subsidies are three. There is one, we pay a reduced rate on the federal fuel tax. My guys pay 7.4 cents a gallon of a 24 cent a gallon federal fuel tax or thereabouts. Um, I bring that up for two reasons to show you how little subsidy we get and also to let you know that publicly funded transits pay no federal fuel tax the second subsidy we get um, and that that hit to the federal budget is about a hundred and fifty million million with an M <laughs> a year <laughs> The second subsidy we get, we get $10 million a year through the appropriations process for bus security. We've been getting that since nine eleven, the fiscal year 2002. It's a competitive grant program. You put in, if you're a bus operator and you want... Uh, well, let's say cameras for your staging areas and your maintenance bays. You put in an application to the Department of Homeland Security, they review the application. If you want $100,000 and they agree, they give you $80,000, you come up with the other 20. It's an 80-20 match. That's subsidy number two. Subsidy number three, we get 8 to $10 million a year to put wheelchair lifts on buses. Under the Americans with Disabilities Act, we are required, if you're a scheduled service, like Graham, or Peter Pan, by 2012 all of our buses have to be wheelchair lift equipped. If you're chartering tour, by 2012 you have to have a wheelchair lift if somebody asks for one within 48 hours of a trip. It costs $40,000 dollars to put a wheelchair lift on a bus. That d- does not matter if it's new bus or ref- uh, you want to retrofit. It's going to cost you $40,000 dollars and you take out two revenue seats to do it but that's the mandate we're fine with the mandate however we wish somebody would think about allowing us a little more money to put wheelchair lifts on buses because it is a drain and again if i'm a publicly funded transit i get all of it paid for by the federal government so um, so our subsidy averaged $63 million a year, Intercity city rail gets $1.4 billion a year, commercial aviation 4.5 and of course publicly funded mass transit. We would like that adjusted, let's say. <laughs> Inner city service. This is the this is the exciting one. This is the new one. These are the new services. If you've taken if you've taken uh, Megabus or you've taken Bolt Bus, you might have taken Vamoose. If you're leaving out of. Uh, Bethesda, Maryland. There's a new service, um, I don't know the name and they're not a member, but I'm looking for them. Um, (laughs) That will leave from U Street and 14th in DC and bypass New York City altogether, well bypass Manhattan altogether and take you directly to Brooklyn. yeah Uh, hmm? so that's 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 a new service and that's what's interesting about buses I mean Alan was saying and I wrote down the note for this what buses are and you know quite apart from my guys privates buses are nimble we can start and stop a service really quickly. We can put on extra sections, that is extra buses, when we need to, virtually on a, with, a, with a dime's worth of notice. So it's the nimbleness of the system, the buses that has allowed all of these new intercity services to spring up. And my office building is like two blocks away from where Megabus is now dropping off, which is that huge lot on K, K and First, and the place is jammed. And it's just really amazing. I I know the CEO of Megabus and Happy doesn't begin to describe him. (laughs) But, I mean, they are really doing really, really good business and the same with Bolt Bus, which, by the way, is a joint venture between Greyhound and Peter Pan Bus Lines. But they're all doing well and it's all, what I can say, and again, I get this from Alan's slide, he talked about amenity-driven travel. The, the new service, the inner city services are very much amenity-driven. You get lots of leg room, and for me, that's crucial. Um, you get Wi-Fi access. You get on-time schedule, and you get the hassle, what I call the hassle factor, which is if I'm going to New York City, I have several choices. I can drive. I try not to. I can take a plane over my dead body.
3: <laughs>
2: I mean, and, the, and the reason for that is you get a call on us. I get an hour trip before I get on the plane to get through security. So I give myself an hour, hour and a half, because I don't like rushing. I get an hour flight, assuming the flight leaves on time. And then if I'm going to LaGuardia and, God forbid, I'm going to Kennedy, how much time does it take me to get into New York? And for which I pay a princely sum. On the other hand, and it, the trip's what, three hours? If, if that works right? On the other hand, if you're willing to make it three and a half, oh, all right, four hours, I can get you to downtown DC, to downtown New York for if you're lucky, $2 round trip. Which would you want to take if it's coming out of your pocket? And that's, that's the model. That's the business model for the new, and it's infinitely, and it is, replicable. Megabus just opened up their terminal in, New- in Washington to go south. You can now go by bus on Megabus nonstop from DC as far south as Charlotte. So you can instantly do this almost anywhere you think the service or the, the fare will support your service. Okay, internet-based reservation system. So you go online and basically they send you a little um, confirmation. You show the confirmation on your BlackBerry to the driver. That's your ticket. Uh, so there's no back office staff. Express city, express service between city pairs, pickup and discharge, um, outside terminals, and all of. Some of us are old enough to remember the old bus terminals that were in the scary parts of town and you didn't want to be seen there and you were afraid to sit down um, or stand up for that matter Um, and of course electronic amenities and the luxury seating this the most interesting thing to me is there is now a super luxury service that a couple of small lines are offering it's even more room, so they've taken out seats, so if you're willing to pay $20 for a round trip ticket, there may be 30 people on the bus rather than 50. So you've got more leg room to stretch out, and I think that's going to be a growing thing. Um, Our problems, and every new service is going to have problems, cities are now viewing this new inner city bus service as cash cow. So, we have proposals in New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. to charge buses for the curb space they use when they're stopping to pick up and drop off passengers. D.C.'s recently announced regulations, which are not final yet, would require a bus company to put in an application for every spot it wanted. and then for a DC board to determine where that bus could drop off and have regulations as to how often and where those buses could be. We think that's a problem. Uh, So environmental regulations, idling restrictions are a problem for us because most cities in their rush to do clean air and clean water say, well, your buses shouldn't idle. Okay, it's four degrees below zero in New York City, and I've got the um, bus on because I need the heat. And you're telling me I can only idle, idle for three minutes. Okay, I'll drop those senior citizens off by your house. <laughs> and you can tell them why you need it. So that is an issue for us. And again, most cities have idling regulations. And by the way, um, before I forget, as Randall points out in his pic in his, um, period, his briefing paper, a uh, uh, citizen's guide to reauthorization, if you take a bus, it's the most environmentally friendly mode of transportation. And if you don't believe Randall, you can go on the ABA website, you will find a link there to the Union of Concerned Scientists report that was released last year that says, if you are taking a trip, either by yourself or with your family, from anywhere from 100 miles to 1,000 miles, your most environmentally friendly choice is a motor coach, and it's not even close. Remember, a full motor coach takes 55 cars off the road and it's to proceed from there so that's environmental economic benefits um, this is not only transportation it's tour and travel which my guys do if you go on the ABA website you can download what a, a motor coach travel brings to every congressional district in terms of the money that's left behind when the people move on in terms of jobs that it supports both direct and indirect i just picked the first conditional district in arkansas just as a an example Mm -hmm. but we have them there for each congressional district and each state um Charter bus regulation. This is getting down in the weeds, but I've got five minutes, so I'll use it. Um, 1970s, the Carter administration came out with a charter bus rule, which basically said, if you are a publicly funded transit agency, you cannot do charter work, charter work that is taking the Boy Scout troop from Washington DC to Disney World, if there is a willing private operator available to do the work. It was put in there because publicly funded transits get 90% of what they need from the federal government and it was deemed unfair for our guys to have to compete against our own tax dollars. That rule has been in effect with some changes since then. Um, In DC alone, Wamada admitted to doing $2 million worth charter work in 2007. So it gives you an idea of how much money can be leaking out of the charter rule without vigorous enforcement of that charter rule. It is a problem that we continue to work with. We had a negotiated rulemaking where we tried to close some of the loopholes. We still get complaints. It's one of our issues. Um, And I'll just leave it at that. We're still working on it. Reauthorization, this is what we'd like. We think that the U.S. Office of Surface Transportation, I didn't come up with the title, but the thought is there should be some place at DOT at the secretarial level where the private sector can interact with the public sector. We are not included when they're trying to put together plans for building transportation facilities. Generally, we get called When the facility is already built, and as one of my guys happened to him in New Hampshire, they came out and said, this is where we think your buses should go. Why haven't you called me in two years? We need to be involved in transportation planning. both in the state and the federal level. We think an office will do that. We have a big problem. You all know about the crashes, the motor coach crashes recently. We have a problem with those guys too. Our analysis says that over 50% of the fatalities in motor coach crashes over the last 10 years involved either illegal or unsafe operators. So if FMCSA better enforce the rules we could cut the fatalities which average about 20 a year we could cut them in half without adding any legislation whatsoever so we think there should be more call for that we also think that there should be stricter standards for being a motor coach operator if you want to be a motor coach operator I don't know why but if you want to be a motor coach operator you go to FMCSA you give them an application it's called an OP1 You fill out what's on that application, basically name, date, birth, whatever. You give them a check for $300. You then say, I have an agent for service of process, and full disclosure, if you're an ABA member, we'll do it. And then you say, I have insurance in the amount of $5 million per incident, which is what is required by FMCSA. At that point, FMCSA, gives you authority to operate. That's it, you're an operator. We think that's not enough. We want more financial standards, we want better standards, and we want better standards for drivers. That's a state issue. States determine who gets what's called a CDL, which is a commercial driver's license, which is what you need to drive either a bus or a truck, over 26,000 pounds. But the states need to do a better job of enforcement and we're all for that. Um, there are a couple of bills in Congress you might have heard about, one is HR 1390, which was introduced last week by Congressman Schuster and uh, Eddie Bernice Johnson, the representative from Dallas, Texas. We're all behind that. We think it's a great bill, but we think it's important. Buses are, I think, going to be more important than they are now. When, when Alan was talking about circumference, The conferential Thank you, so conferential transportation, he was talking about buses. That's the only thing you're going to get. Try putting a rail system. How many years, how much money? Try Try a car, that's not going to work. What will work when you need it, as needed, as things change, are buses. And I think we're going to have to get used to that and stop trying for these gold edge systems of uh, commuters, particularly light rail, that aren't going to serve a a lot of people and basically as housing patterns change, job patterns change, demographics change, I've still got that rail line right there. It doesn't go anywhere but it's great for growing weeds in between the tracks. Okay thanks and uh, look forward to any questions
0: oh, thanks yeah. Well thanks Banning uh, cleanup today is Randall O'Toole. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute the uh Extremely prestigious Cato Institute, if I may add. Uh, He's the author of numerous books and studies. A number of the studies are available on the table outside the registration table. If you didn't pick them up, they're all available at Uh, Cato.org. He's written a a, a bunch of books as well, including The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths, The Best Laid Plans, as well as uh, Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do About It. Uh, I'll note very briefly that uh, it was called a tour de force, this book, by uh, the very uh, influential and prestigious uh, transportation scholar, Alan (laughs) Pizarski. With that, that, I'll turn things over to Randall.
3: Okay, well, I'm trying to get my technology working here. It was working beforehand, but it's not working now. Uh, Something to do with mine.
1: Can you trust a guy who brings his own PowerPoint
3: system? Okay. You think that'll work? Yeah. So much for the iPhone, isn't it? Is this going to work? Yeah, it's going to work. Okay. I want to talk about four transportation trends uh, and. The Cato Institute hired me in 2007 to work on transportation issues and land use issues as well, and I could see that reauthorization was going to happen someday. And so I started writing a series of papers about what the next reauthorization should include. And uh, many of the papers are available here. You can find other papers downloadable online. Uh, I want to talk briefly about four transportation trends that I think have to be taken into account uh, 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 in the next transportation reauthorization. The first trend has to do with user fees. Now about 40 years ago, almost all transportation, from airlines to uh, railroads to uh, uh, buses to uh, urban transit to highways, almost all transportation was paid for out of user fees. And there were very few taxes. Uh, Even uh, mass transit uh, was almost all private about 45 years ago, and uh, the, even the public transit agencies, the user fees paid for almost all of the operating costs, and there were only subsidies to capital costs. So uh, transportation was pretty much all private, even the highways, they were public, but they were funded almost exclusively out of gas taxes and tolls. So it was a user-fee driven system, it was a market-driven system, and I think the system worked pretty well. Uh, Since then, things have changed quite a bit. Today we have subsidies for all modes of transit, but the subsidies vary tremendously. Now you can see automobile subsidies average about a penny a passenger mile. And auto drivers spend about 22 cents a passenger mile driving, so add the subsidy, we've got 23 cents a passenger mile cost of driving in cities. Uh, transit costs about $0.90 cents a passenger mile on average, $0.70 cents of which is subsidized, and uh, many cities in America are talking about, are building, or talking about building light rail. That's very expensive. I don't even have streetcars on here, which is the latest fad. They're even more expensive than that. Uh, the fares are kept competitive with driving, but the subsidies are, are gigantic. For intercity travel, air travel, and automobile travel, and bus travel all cost about the same. The subsidies in all cases are less than a penny a passenger mile. Amtrak costs about four times as much, uh, uh, half of which is paid by the user and half of which is subsidized, as flying. Uh, So Amtrak fares are roughly, on average, twice as much as air fares. High-speed rail, uh, if we build it, uh, will be even more expensive. Amtrak's Acela uh, costs users 75 cents a passenger mile. That's the user, and th- there are subsidies to, to the capital cost of the Acela, and any other high-speed rail would even be more heavily subsidized. So. We've got these huge subsidies and we've got huge disparities in subsidies. Because highways and airports get a small subsidy, the advocates of these other modes say, well, they're subsidized, so we should be subsidized too. But they're talking about gigantic subsidies per passenger mile compared to the relatively tiny subsidies. I think it's important that in the next transportation reauthorization we work to get rid of all subsidies, put everything on a user fee basis, and then we can have the kind of transportation systems that people are willing to pay for, which I think will be a lot more cost effective. Now, one justification for the subsidies for transit and Amtrak and so on is that they're supposed to be environmentally friendly. Well, 40 years ago, that was true. When most cars were gas hogs and and transit systems were still uh, either private or had just been made public, the transit buses and, and transit vehicles tended to be relatively full. And yet, since then, we've had two trends. Cars have gotten a lot more energy efficient so you see this dropping line for passenger cars and, and light trucks and BTUs per passenger mile, whereas we've extended transit systems out to areas that where fewer and fewer fewer people ride, and so the average number of people on a transit vehicle has declined. The the Uh, advocates of transit sneer at single occupancy vehicles. Well the average car with five seats would be 20 percent occupied if it were a single occupancy vehicle. The average transit bus and transit rail car is only 15 percent occupied. So a single occupancy vehicle, five-passenger car, has a higher occupancy rate than the average transit vehicle. So we see transit Uh, Energy consumption rising per passenger mile. Uh, Automobile energy consumption has fallen per passenger mile and today light trucks, meaning SUVs and pickups and and full-size vans, use less energy per passenger mile than buses. Uh, Cars use less energy per passenger mile than light rail. Uh, Toyota Prius beats the heck out of everything except for intercity buses. As Clyde said, it's really hard to beat intercity buses because the intercity buses are private, and they go where people want to go so they can earn a profit, and so they tend to fill up. They fill them up an average of about two-thirds full, and at that rate, uh, they tend to be uh, very energy efficient as well as cost efficient. So the trend has been to move away from user fees, and the result is we've been getting a transportation system that has not worked as well, we've had huge increases in congestion, we've had huge increases in costs, and yet we've had very limited increases in total mobility. And that mobility, as Alan pointed out, is very important for our economic future. So we need to reverse that trend and go back to a user fee driven system. Now the second trend that we've seen is a trend in the way the federal government hands out money. Uh, Historically, surface transportation was handed out mainly in the form of what are called formula grants, where uh, each state would get an amount of money according to a formula that was written by Congress in the hexennial surface transportation bill, reauthorization bill. And these are just two of the formulas that are used uh, one for urbanized area transit, one for the interstate maintenance. There's about probably 20 different formula funds and each one has a different formula and some of them get really complex and arcane. Uh, but uh, the point is once the money is in the hands of the states, they know how much they're gonna get for the next six years, once it's in their hands, they can spend that money as, uh, as efficiently as they're able to uh, and this system seems to somewhat work pretty well. The other alternative is uh, the other kind of funds is called the discretionary funds. I call it the competitive grant funds. They set up a pile of money, you know, $10 billion. We're going to give out $10 billion a year. Uh, Here's our criteria. We want you to reduce congestion, reduce air pollution, and so on. Uh, Write a competitive grant, and we'll give out the money to the most deserving people. It sounds good on paper. But it never works out that way. Instead, the money is given out to the most politically powerful people, not the most deserving people. And it ends up being a pot of money. And if you're a city and you want to get some of that money, your incentive is to design the most expensive transportation project you can think of, the most gold-plated, high-cost, low-benefit project, because the higher the cost, the more money you're going to get from the federal government if it's funded at all. And uh, my hometown of Portland, Oregon, pioneered this with light rail, building a really expensive light rail system so that they could consume as much money as they can, and even today, when they're on the verge of having spent $5 billion on a light rail system and driven transit commuting all the way from 9.8% before the light light rail, down to 6.5% of area commuters take transit today, uh, after they built four light rail lines and a streetcar line, um, having done all that, they still say we have to keep building light rail so we can continue to get our share of federal dollars. So the, the discretionary, competitive grant-making process has not worked very well. It's just turned into a big political pork barrel, uh, and where the administration passes out money to their friends and. Powerful members of Congress make sure that their dis- districts get covered, and so forth. Uh, and yet, the trend has been that the discretionary funds have been growing. Uh, if we divide uh, the last two uh, reauthorization b- packages into three f- kinds of funds—formula funds, earmarks, and discretionary funds—all three of them have grown about ten billion dollars between T21 and, and Safety Lou. But because the discretionary and earmarks are so much smaller than the uh, formula funds, a percentage has been growing much faster. That's a trend we need to reverse. We need to go back to more formula funds and less discretionary funds. Unfortunately, the o- Obama administration has got a proposal for what they call an infrastructure bank, which would be a giant discretionary fund that they claim would be competitively driven. But we know from the high-speed rail, the way the high-speed rail money was handed out, it's going to be driven mainly by politics. And, and so uh, I don't think that would be a good idea at all. Now, if we're going to use formula funds, how should that formula be designed in order to get uh, improved our transportation systems. Well, first of all, uh, I think formula funds are better than discretionary funds. I also think fewer pots of money are better than more pots of money. If you have 20 different pots of money, and you're a state, and you're getting this money in these 20 different pots, that gives you less flexibility. You might think your priority is improving this interstate highway over here, or improving this bridge over here, but the pots of money don't give you that flexibility. So fewer pots are better than more pots, And uh, the most important thing is the formulas should reward the states for spending their money more cost effectively. How do we define cost effective? I think one simple definition is, are people willing to pay for what they're getting? If they're not willing to pay for it, it's not very effective. So uh, using user fees as a measure of performance, it's an easily measured form of performance, Uh, and it can be built right into the formula. Now when I say user fee, I mean a a fee that's collected from the users and spent on the mode that they're using. If you collect a transit fare from somebody and and spend it on a bike path, it's a tax. If you collect a transit fare from somebody and spend it on transit, it's a user fee. If you collect a, a highway toll or a gas tax and spend it on transit, it's a tax. If you spend it on the highway, it's a user fee. So with that definition of user fees in mind, I would propose a formula fund in which the fund is distributed 50% according to what the user fees are collected in each state, 5% according to the land area of each state, and 45% according to the population of each state. Now if you use this formula, it turns out almost all the states get pretty close to the amount of money they're getting today. So the states aren't going to be able to complain and say, oh, we're going to get shortchanged with this formula. A couple states will, but most states won't. But using this formula, the states will look at it and say, we can get more if we can provide better forms of transportation that will attract more user fees. Not just raise taxes, but actually improve the transportation in order to get more user fees. They'll get more user fees and they'll get more federal money for, for it, so we'll have a Uh, States in a competition to rise to the top of being more user oriented rather than more politically oriented. Now, I want to talk about another trend. Uh, Historically, we have funded our highways and in fact almost all federal surface transportation funding has come from a gas tax. My home state of Oregon was the first state to pass a gas tax in 1919 and dedicate it to highways. By 1930, all 48 states had dedicated their gas taxes to highways. 1956, the federal government dedicated federal gas taxes to highways. The problem with gas taxes is uh, they work when it's not very, not much congestion, when there's not. Uh, a lot of crowds, but when it starts getting congested, uh, gas taxes don't work very well. Tolls work a little better because you can charge a toll, a higher toll during rush hour than other times of the day. The problem with tolls is the collection costs are so high when you have to have someone out there with their hand out at every toll booth. So in 1956, Congress decided to go with gas taxes rather than tolls. Today, we have electronic toll systems that are totally electronic. You have a transponder in your car, and as you drive under it, it ticks off that you've consumed that much money, and it you know charges it to your account or ticks it off your, your preloaded account, and if you don't have a transponder, it photographs your license plate and sends you a bill. Totally electronic. The collection costs are a lot lower than having somebody (coughs) with their hand out. Uh, Still a little bit higher than than gas taxes, but still uh, it makes it a lot more efficient. So we can have a different kind of of user fee based on uh, when and where people drive rather than based on gas taxes. And this is important because gas taxes are disappearing as a viable source of revenue. As cars get more fuel efficient, gas taxes are getting lower and lower. When you fill up your tank, At the gas station, the amount you pay in tax is only half as much as the amount your parents paid in 1960 for every mile you drive, uh, because cars are so much more fuel efficient. So my home state of Oregon is, again, pioneering. They have developed a system of charging based on the miles you drive and where you drive and potentially when you drive, rather than based on how much gas you buy. And the way this system works, and it's it's keyed to petroleum-powered vehicles, but we can design it for uh, electric vehicles as well, and in fact the state is right now considering legislation to include electric vehicles in it, Uh, you have a GPS on board your car. The GPS tracks where you go. When you go on a county highway, the, the miles you drive on that highway would go to the county. When you go on a city street, the miles you drive would go on the city. When you go on a state highway, the miles you drive would go to the state. When you drive up to a gas station, the gasoline pump has an electronic device in it. When it gets inserted in your gas tank, it communicates with the GPS. And the only thing the GPS tells it is how much money you owe. It doesn't tell it where you went or when you went there. Your privacy is is totally assured. It only tells it how much money you owe, and it might break it down by the type of road you went on, city, state, county, whatever. Uh, As you can see in this particular one, it shows uh, uh, your gas tax would have been $4.68, but because of your miles you drove, it was $5.12, so it deducts the gas tax and adds the mile fee to get your total. So it actually is a transitional system. They can use the gas tax or they can go to the vehicle mile fee and the two are compatible side by side. Uh, So as people get new cars, we can switch to the vehicle mile fee and have this uh, technology incorporated into their cars. Uh, So that's the new trend, that's the kind of way that we're going to pay for our highways in the future and I think that has to be recognized. Now what about dealing with congestion, dealing with crumbling infrastructure, and so on and so forth? Uh, There's actually, it turns out, there's some very low cost things that are going to uh, greatly improve our transportation system, in particular automotive and highways. First of all, The most cost effective thing any city can do to reduce congestion is traffic signal coordination. I say this over and over again, and yet I see cities across the country with 75% of their traffic signals uncoordinated saying we're gonna go out and spend a billion dollars on light rail when that billion dollars is gonna do less to relieve congestion than spending uh, $50 million on traffic signal coordination and they leave that unfunded because they don't have any money for it. The next thing is cars are becoming smarter all the time. You can buy cars today that have what's called adaptive cruise control. They measure the distance to the car in front of you and maintain a fixed distance. They'll break if you get too close. And if you just set it on adaptive cruise control, it'll keep that fixed distance When 20% of the cars on the road are using adaptive cruise control, about half of all our congestion is gonna go away because a lot of congestion is just related to slow human reaction times, and the computers being much faster won't have that slower reaction time. You can buy cars today that not only have adaptive cruise control, they watch for the stripes on the road and steer between the stripes. That's called lane keep and they watch other cars on the road and if a car starts veering into your lane because they, they're, you're in their blind spot, your car will brake or accelerate or swerve or whatever it takes to avoid a collision. You can buy those three features today on a Toyota Prius or a Lexus or a Mercedes, lots of different cars. Uh, the cheapest one I know is the Prius, the top of the line Prius has those three features for about $30,000. Uh, the actual technology is very cheap. But they, the, as any technology, the car manufacturers start out with their high-end cars and let it work down. Not because the technology is expensive, but because they're trying to make uh, you know, the, the bucks from the people who will buy everything uh, from the very start. Once you have those three technologies, adaptive <laughs> cruise control, and uh, 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 vehicle collision avoidance, and uh, lane keep, you add that, you tie that into your GPS system, And you have a driverless car. People today are driving in cars that are 90% driverless. Basically, turning them into a full driverless car is nothing more than a software upgrade. And driverless cars sound like science fiction, but they're not. Um, Turn off this audio. Um, Sebastian Thrun is a German researcher at Stanford University Uh, He was hired by Volkswagen to to put this together, but other companies have contributed. Uh, Google has uh, driven driverless cars around California 140,000 miles. The cars can deal with stoplights, they can deal with pedestrians, they can deal with other cars. Uh, The only accident they had in that 140,000 miles was somebody who rear-ended them at a stoplight. (laughs) One accident. Uh, The driverless technology is available. It's not science fiction. The main obstacles are bureaucratic and institutional. If we can remove those obstacles, uh, we will have driverless cars on the market in two or three years. Our automotive, uh, automobile fleet turns over every 18 years. So by 2025, 2030, (coughs) most cars on the road will be driverless. and that'll have a huge increase in in mobility. You won't have to be 16 years old and able-bodied to drive. You can drive if you're nine years old, you can drive if you're 90 years old. People can, uh, my 85-year-old parents will be able to stay in their home longer if they have a driverless car than if uh, if they have to uh, uh, rely on somebody else. Here's a typical sensor, Uh, those are laser sensors to uh, observe what's going on around the car. Uh, here's a driverless valet parking car that uh, Volkswagen has developed. Basically, you go up to a restaurant, you uh, uh, get out of your car, and you say, Car, go find a parking place and park yourself. So it drives around until it finds a parking place, an empty parking place, and then it parks. And then uh, you get done eating, and you come out of your restaurant, pull out your iPhone, and you say, Car, come. And the car <laughs> starts up and drives out and comes and picks you up. And uh, This technology is not available for sale today, but it is available today, and basically we need to change some state laws to make it possible for that to work. So uh, in conclusion, the four trends that I want you to think about as we think about reauthorization is that it's important to move back to funding transportation out of user fees and less out of uh, taxes and subsidies. Second, it's important to give states incentives to be cost effective. And one way to do that is to focus on formula grants rather than uh, competitive uh, or discretionary grants. Third, uh, look towards replacing gas taxes. It's not going to happen in this reauthorization, but look towards replacing gas taxes with vehicle mile fees in the next few years. And finally, look towards driverless cars as a technology that. Uh, will increasingly be available, and we, we need to figure out how to remove those uh, institutional and bureaucratic barriers to make it happen. Thank you very much.
0: I always tell Randall that when he uh, talks about driverless cars, he should use that as an opportunity to uh, make a Knight Rider David Hasselhoff <laughs> joke. And he has never taken me up on that. But if anybody has a good one, maybe you can I offer that I have no
3: idea up. who David Hasselhoff is. <laughs> what? What? Well, there must be something wrong with me. I don't
0: know. <laughs> It'll be syndicated in co- Oregon co- soon <laughs> enough. Uh, anyway, we're a little bit over time here. But let's try to get to just one or two quick questions, if we could. Uh, any questions from the audience? Uh, yes, please. Just a selfish
1: one. Where can, where can I find all the buses going from D.C.
2: to O.C.? <laughs> That's a really good question. It's one of the things we'd like to see in reauthorization is some sort of real-time schedule information. That is missing. Um, last time uh, for I've been in this job 10 years and I keep flogging the idea that we need some sort of real-time information where all Transportation modes are available to all people, so um, it's not there yet. But it's it's uh, something we'd really very much like to see. Actually, the answer is on the internet. That each different,
3: uh, I would say, New York to D.C. bus. You know, that. Uh, there's at least a dozen different companies operating in the New York to Washington, to D.C. to Washington, to Boston corridor. And uh, they all have different endpoints, you know, some of them go from Bethesda to New York, some of them go from D.C. to Brooklyn, whatever. So you find the one that's closest to where you want to go from where
0: you want to go and Thank you. In the back there, please. How much
3: would it cost to implement the mile tax system? Well the cost really uh, is not that much more than the cost of uh, a gas tax system. Uh, You need a transponder on a car and that would probably be 50 to $100 and then you need something at the pump. You need the the device at the pump that reads the transponder and I think the state of Oregon estimated that was about $30,000 per uh, gas station to, to outfit the gas stations. But uh, the state of Oregon has published a lot of studies on this. You can find them online at the Oregon ODOT website, uh, and, and they've estimated what the total cost would be to totally convert Oregon's system over, and you can uh, extrapolate from there for other states.
1: I guess I disagree with that a little bit because the gas tax, basically you've got what, 100 firms, I think, that we tax and it just feeds down through the system. Uh, we, you don't have to chase, you're not tracing 260 million vehicles. So it, 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 we're gonna get there, the question is how long is it gonna take? Mister. Uh, yes, sir.
3: None of you talk, excuse me, none of you talk very much about electric vehicles. Do you
0: think we're going through electric vehicles, and that, would that alter any of your recommendations?
1: I, I, my reaction would be that, that the biggest problem for say the use of the, the gas tax out into the future is is going to be inflation. That's the biggest factor that really ma- manages and, and affects its its, its applicability. Uh, you'd be you'd be happy to give away the cost of the ga- uh, of the electric vehicles for at least the next ten years, maybe twenty. Uh, it's just part of the system. It's it's a trivial part of the game. If you could index for inflation, index for some of the other factors that are involved, con- construction costs. I'd be happy to give away the gas tax uh, for the uh, electric cars.
3: I think there's a lot of things we can do to make petroleum-powered cars a lot more energy efficient before we start getting into electric-powered cars. Because electric-powered cars uh, have battery limits and... Uh, uh, distance limits and and very high cost. It will be a lot cheaper to save energy by substituting aluminum for steel, substituting carbon fiber for aluminum, uh, uh, building more uh, less wind-resistant designs, and things like that are going to save more energy uh, for more cars than trying to get some electric cars that cost $50,000
2: each. And on the, the bus side, I don't know if anybody that's doing research into an electric-powered bus, not even, it's not even close. I do.
3: The uh, oh? Netherlands, uh, there's a, a physicist in the Netherlands who was the first astronaut from the Netherlands, and he got a grant from the Netherlands of about 13 million euros, and he developed a 23-passenger, uh, all-electric bus that's capable of driving 150 miles an hour. And uh, For three can, miles? No, no, it, <laughs> for, for regular distances. So uh, go to YouTube and, and search Super Bus, uh, Netherlands, and, and you'll be able to find some videos of it. Thank you. Thank,
0: Thank you very much. Question: um, Won't uh, people in more rural areas argue that a VMT tax is unfair to them to, to travel long distances to get anywhere?
3: No, because they have to pay a gas tax anyway. I mean, my idea is that it'd be roughly revenue neutral. You'd, you'd eliminate the gas tax and replace it with a VMT tax, uh, and you're, roughly you're paying now according to how many miles you drive, although if you have a Prius, you're paying less than if you have a uh, Ford F-150. But still, uh, you'd be paying for how many miles you drive. I think the people who will end up paying the most will be people who are driving on really expensive roads uh, or driving in rush hour a lot rather than people in the rural areas.
1: The rural population tends to pay a considerable premium. I wish I remembered the number of 50 60% over the urban person in terms of their average Fuel consumption, um, and so that is, as Wendell, uh, as uh, Randall says, that kind of balances out when you go over to a VMT-based tax. One of the funny things that the VMT-based tax does is it taxes a Prius at the same rate as a as a Ford 250. Uh, so in effect, there's a kind of a almost a, a cross subsidy
0: to the bigger real. Let's squeeze in two more quick questions right here, and then right there. Uh, yeah, could uh, any of you speak at all to? freight transportation in the United States, where things are going
1: there. We've talked almost entirely about, about moving people. What about, uh, what about goods? Uh, I, I work a fair amount in the freight side. Uh, the point I made in the presentation, I think, is the critical one. It's the value of goods. If we look in, into the future, we're going to be seeing increasing values of goods moving. I'm not talking about the total dollars. I'm talking about dollars per pound, dollars per ton. Move, think of moving coal versus moving a ton of computer chips. We're going to be moving high-value goods, goods that have gotten lighter and smaller. um, And the the ability to pay for and the demand for high-value transportation will increase. And that, to me, means focusing on trucks, focusing on something that's highly reliable, an air truck kind of a system, uh, much more than potentially uh, available from trains or any other mode. That doesn't mean we're not going to be moving coal, we're not going to be moving grain. That stuff's still going to be there. But the high-value stuff is going to be critical for our economy.
3: Well, I'd modify that just a little bit. Coal and grain are big rail items, but so are containers. And I think we're going to see more containerization. Uh, you know, people buy stuff from Hong Kong, and it gets put in a container, and the container goes to Los Angeles, and it gets put on rails, and goes to Seattle, and then it gets distributed into trucks and from there. Uh, Historically, what we've seen in the United States is rail transportation has gone from about less than 30% of freight movements to 40% uh, between 1970 and today, whereas trucks have gone from about 35% to about 27% of freight movements. In Europe, the, the patterns have been exactly the opposite. Almost 75 percent of freight in Europe is carried by truck. 60 percent of freight in Japan is carried by truck. Uh, only about 17 percent of freight in Europe is carried by rail. Only 4 percent of freight in Japan is carried by rail. It's because Europe and Japan have dedicated their rail lines to passengers which isn't very energy efficient, because a a 50-ton freight car can hold 100 tons of freight, but it can only hold about 5 tons of passengers. So you've got a lot of energy pushing around those dead weight cars to carry a few passengers, uh, whereas it's very energy efficient for moving freight.
1: Yeah, I guess I'd just add, to make that point further, is that the U.S. rail system is the most efficient in the world and is the most Extensive in terms of shares of ton miles that are being moved. And, and people in America just don't recognize. They see the trucks and, and, and assume the trucks are everywhere. In fact, it's the real ton miles that dominate the system.
0: John, you get the last question. Um, first, I asked Mr. O'Toole, you know, in, uh, when one of the Safety Loop Commissions first came out and started seriously talking about the VMT, the idea was to replace the gas tax. And then when Mr. Overstar kind of got a hold of it, it was sort of well, we'll look at the VMT, but then if we ever adopt that, we'll kind of keep the gas tax as a supplement. Do you ever realistically think that the federal government should actually get rid of a national gas gas tax? And then I'd ask Mr. Hart if the bus industry has looked at, you know, a VMT versus a gas tax, and how it would affect the industry.
3: Somebody said to me yesterday that they thought uh, the pressure on reauthorization is going to be coming from people in Congress who are going to try to figure out how to use it as pork barrel. Uh, I mean, that's the tendency, is to make it more and more pork. And if we can raise funds for highways with VMT, why do you need the federal government at all? And so if Mr. Oberstar wants to keep the gas tax, it's just because he wanted to keep his hand in controlling where the money went. Uh, And so I, I think the gas tax will phase out but members of Congress are going to have to figure out some other form of pork barrel so they can get their pork barrel fixed that way rather than relying on transportation.
1: The thing that scares me is we now have the gas tax dedicated to, to, to highways, to transportation, transit. Um, in Europe, the gas tax is a cast cow. They don't spend any more money on transportation than we do. They just tax it four or five times what we do. And so if we don't use the gas tax for transportation, if it's not dedicated to transportation, um, it's going to go to, to doing really nice things that somebody's going to think of. Uh, and I can't think of any way that this Congress or any Congress can say we will never have a gas tax again. And so my point of view, my argument is as long as the gas tax exists, it's got to be dedicated to the system. It's the only way that you control the upper limit on what those gas taxes will be. Otherwise, you have gas tax or tolls as a cash cow as in Europe.
2: And for the bus industry, we really believe that if you have a gas tax, and nobody's in my industry that I know of is thinking of any kind of an alternative, it really needs to be invested in the highways. So.
0: All right, and with that, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today, and please join me in thanking our panel.
1: Thanks for coming. Sure. I will send you...